Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It is the blockbuster event of the week, of the month, possibly of the year. It is the Federal Reserve decision that will be announced at 2 p.m. And more importantly, the 2.30 p.m. press conference with Fed Chair Jay Powell, indicating perhaps how the Federal Reserve is thinking about future rate cuts. Joining us, I'm so pleased to say, is Ed Alhassani. He's Senior Interest Rate Rates and Currencies Analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments, which oversees uh, nearly $460 billion. Ed, thank you so much for being with us. What are you expecting from the Fed today? Uh, great to be with you. So, you know, in terms of the, the, the Fed decision today, I mean, let me just start by saying that the case for a front-loaded easing cycle that's pretty aggressive, starting perhaps with a 50 basis point cut today, is very compelling. And yet, at the same time, on the FOMC, um, I would say there's pretty violent disagreement in terms of whether to proceed with something that aggressive. Um, so I think the base case has to be a 25 basis point cut uh, with some guidance in terms of uh, cuts later on this year as well. Uh, but in my mind, again, the, the case for front loading and being quite aggressive at this stage is, is very compelling. So, Ed, your case, again, your uh, case for more aggressive front loading of interest rates, maybe 50 basis points today. Um, What's that predicated upon? Because it seems like some of the, the cyclical data that we're getting recently is actually pretty decent, whether it's um, jobs or, you know, other the consumer seems pretty strong. Yeah, and, and look, and, and I want to acknowledge that there, there there's basically two buckets uh, of factors driving this decision. There's the cyclical factors, uh, which really kind of focus on some of the shorter-term data that we've had come through over the past six months. There's obviously a manufacturing stall. There's a slowdown globally, uh, you know, quite pronounced in, in Europe that was confirmed by GDP data today. Uh, obviously, a slowdown in, in, in China and Asia more broadly, uh, and weakness in domestic capex. Uh, the labor market in the U.S. Uh, looks relatively healthy, but there as well we're seeing on the margin uh, weakness versus where we were last year, and you see that pretty clearly in in, in wages. Wage growth has stagnated at around three uh, percent, and you see that being confirmed by the employment cost index day as well. So there's some short-term data uh, that I would say has weakened, and if you if you focus in uh, in terms of data flow over the past six weeks, uh, you can feel a little bit more optimistic. Uh, uh, like you said, labor market is okay. Uh, confidence, both in terms of consumer confidence and business confidence, is is pretty solid. Um, and the household sector in general has been very healthy, and that's been true for, for a number of years now. So, wait, um, go ahead. Uh, but I was going to say that, you know, the, the, the structural reason is really a risk management reason. From the perspective of uh, real rates remain quite low, uh, and yet we are significantly above real rates uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, that's a dynamic that's unlikely to be sustainable. So our real rates are coming down. Growth continues to decelerate, um, yeah, whether our potential is somewhere between one and a half and 175. Uh, we're, we're going to that level. Um, and the margin for error for the Fed uh, is shrinking. And we see what happens when that margin disappears uh, in terms of uh, outcomes in, in Europe and Japan. And that's a place we, we desperately don't want to be. So here's here's my concern, actually, with all of this, is that ultimately this comes down to a currency play. 
Because if this is a relative value game with respect to the rest of the world, it comes down to weakening the dollar uh, and, and thus lowering yields here. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, is that the ultimate goal sort of implicitly of the Federal Reserve at this point? I, I would push back against that a, a little bit in the sense that uh, the currency sensitivity of the U.S. economy is actually quite low. Uh, the pass-through of the currency into inflation is quite low. Obviously, it has a it has a short term impact, but as we've seen, the dollar has strengthened uh, and has weakened. It's gone through cycles over the course of the past decade, and the pass through and uh, the impact on inflation is, is marginal. Although, although uh, that said, a lot of people say that the reason why yields on on U.S. Treasury uh, treasuries are so high relative to the rest of the world is only because of the Fed. And frankly, because the Fed is in in a, a raising uh, cycle, or has been, um, that has kept the dollar stronger and the hedging costs have been higher. And the hedging costs will come down if the Fed cuts and that will draw more foreign investors back into U.S. Uh, assets. And then we'll just lower the rates substantially. I mean, do you buy that argument? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, look, the curve has flattened as the Fed has hiked. So the Fed's ability to impact the longer end of the curve has been relatively muted. Um, uh, this is, this is uh, I think, quite similar to hikes that we saw in the 90s and the 2000s, right? So we, we have the curve flattened. Um, the, the hedging cost issue, uh, I think you're right, it, but, but it's, I think it's much more relevant for risk assets in the U.S., if you think about foreign demand for risk assets and the fact that you know about half of fixed income outside of the U.S. Uh, now yields uh, below zero, there's obviously a robust demand for, for U.S. risk uh, from Europe, from Japan, uh, from the broader Asian complex, and high hedging costs have kept some of those buyers on the sidelines. Um, at the same time, it's not the Fed's job to manage hedging costs for international investors. Um, that's that's a byproduct of what they're trying to do here. That's not in their what mandate book? It's <laughs> not in their mandate book. I mean, it's, um, um, uh, look, it's a, it's a fair thing to say, um, if we zoom out a little bit, foreign demand for treasuries, for example, has diminished. And it's been in structural decline uh, over the past five years. But domestic demand has stepped in. And we've really not seen uh, any impact of that on the long end of the curve, uh, despite the fact that issuance has uh, increased, obviously due to deficits, and demand, foreign demand has stepped back. Um, and as a thought experiment, uh, I would say this. If we didn't have this fiscal um, um, uh, surplus, uh, sorry, this, this, this increase in the fiscal deficit over the last several years, uh, U.S. long-end rates would be substantially below where they are today. Uh, and that should be very worrying for the Fed. Um, it means we would be much closer to where Germany is today. Um, and that's, again, a reflection of our growth and inflation dynamics uh, rather than uh, anything that the Fed is trying to do. Ed Al-Husseini, thank you very much. Ed is a senior interest rate uh, and currency analyst at Columbia Threadneedle Investments based in Minneapolis.
Well, Apple reported some pretty decent results, better than expected for its fiscal third quarter. Fourth quarter forecast, also a little bit better than expected. I'm looking at the stock here on the Bloomberg Terminal, up about 4.3% today, up about 38% for the year. So investors certainly like what they heard there. To help us break it down a little bit, we welcome back our good friend, Laura Martin. She's a senior analyst at Needham & Company. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Laura, thanks so much for being with us key takeaways from Apple. You have a strong buy on the stock. We do. It's our one strong buy name. It's our top pick for this year. Um, and what I would say is this. I think the three most important metrics that drive Apple's upside are the, the number of installed base unique users and then um, the actual revenue per user and then how long they stay in the Apple ecosystem, which generates this lifetime value per user. And what you saw yesterday from their earnings, which was so important, was that they hit all-time highs in every product, which means the installed base is growing. The penetration per unique, we think there's 950 unique users. The penetration is now 1.6 products per user, up from 1.5 a year ago. So they're getting deeper penetration of products. And finally, we're getting, we have four, 420 uh, million subscriptions up from 360 90 days ago and up from 320 the 90 days before that. All of which says, and that lowers churn because every time somebody subscribes to a service, it lowers your churn, which elongates the amount of time someone stays in the ecosystem. Coming on the, looking forward as the next catalyst, we have the arcade service coming, we have the card coming, Apple Pay is getting more widely used. They're gonna try to add services that displace other services in the market, which is one of the reasons Spotify is correcting today. And all of that should lower churn, which makes the lifetime value per customer go up both because they're in the ecosystem longer and because they're spending more money on new services. Although some people would argue that they're trying to shift their focus to a services company and yet their services uh, revenue came in below expectations. So what's sort of your reasoning behind why that's okay? So I think I think the important point for me anyway is that services has a 70% profit margin and product has a 30% profit margin. So I think an interesting frame way to frame Apple is razor razor blade. Let's give a loss leader on the product. Okay, it's a 30% margin, not a loss like a razor. And then what you're really selling is the 70% margin services. So every time they tell you they're adding a new 70, a new service, that's another new green field of adding a 70% margin. So to me, that's the more important point here because that's like a, a supercharger for the EBITDA growth and the stock trades on a PE and it trades at 15 times earnings and it's going to grow 17%, which means you're buying this stock at a peg ratio of nine point nine zero point nine yep. meaning below one even though it's now the biggest company on earth it has a nice growth now they've got when, when the china trade issues flared up apple certainly got hit it was highlighted as one of those companies that's really exposed they sell a lot of product in china they manufacture a lot of product in china did they have anything last night on their conference call to talk about kind of how they view china yeah, so I mean, I, I sort of thought one of the things that came out of last night's call was they've sort of solved China. And what they said was they had to lower price for sure because the US dollar's been so strong. But they said that the Chinese consumer has not had a negative reaction to American products, which was something we we're super worried about. That the Chinese government had become much more aggressive at stimulating the consumer economy. So they were getting more acquisitions of uh, in China of iPhones. Um, and that the trade talks you saw that the, uh, the administration 
administration said they were constructive, the China trade talks were constructive today. Um, so that all of that sounds like China might be solved, at least for the near term. And it definitely was a driver of Apple's unit upside in the quarter. I want to shift gears a little bit as we head into the second half of this earnings season and go back and look at some of the ones that came out earlier. Netflix reporting on July 17th uh, or July 18th, and they showed that they lost subscribers. It was a big disappointment. You saw the shares decline substantially. I'm wondering what your view is here. Is this a buying opportunity? Uh, we would say no. I mean, our thesis is that um, subscriber losses in the U.S. is the new normal. Uh, they raised price, which is what drove the subscriber losses in the June quarter. But starting on November 12th, you're going to get the Walt Disney Company coming in um, with a new competitive entrant at half the price. It's going to be seven dollars uh, versus Netflix uh, is now, you know, sort of twelve to fourteen dollars. And um, you're going to have every movie that Disney's ever made in that service for $7 from Lucasfilm, from Marvel, from Pixar, and from Disney Animation like Frozen. So every big film they've ever made in 50 years will be on that service watchable 15 times by your 12-year-old girl if they want to. <laughs> so I think you're going to get trial. What we saw from Game of Thrones is that so long as Game of Thrones was on, people subscribed and paid $15 for HBO, and they had stopped paying for Netflix. Then Game of Thrones ended, they went back to Netflix. So what's going to happen is people are going to turn off Netflix and spend $7 buying Disney. And when they finish watching all those movies, Disney's challenge will be to transport them to the Fox programming, which is more TV series. Otherwise, they're going to go back to Netflix. But meanwhile, it's going to be a hellish three months, six months for Netflix U.S. subscriber subs as people go over to Disney and, and sort of rewatch all those great movies. So one of the things we've also seen as it relates to Netflix and a lot of the traditional media companies, which you've covered for a long time, Laura, is a lot of the media companies are bringing some of their content that they had been licensing to Netflix, bringing it back because they are launching their own service, whether it's Disney or Comcast or uh, NBC and you know, all those folks. How big of a risk is that for Netflix losing some of that content? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a risk because the value proposition is getting worse because they used to have The Office and they used to have Friends and, and those were two of their highest rated shows or viewed shows and now those are leaving and they're splitting up. One's going to Warner and one's going to NBC. So what's about to happen to the consumer is he's going to have five choices where it used to all be aggregated for $10 a month under Netflix, which was an awesome value proposition. So what the consumer is going to have to do now is figure out which services he wants. And so we're going to have this chaotic period of sort of open free-for-all competition for let's say three to five years. But at the end of five years, consumers are, all the research shows that consumers are going to take three of these big entertainment services, probably including a spending bundle or the big bundle, plus a couple OTTs. So the consumer will decide and it will be winner take all. And then whoever wins, they'll have to license the contract for the guy who went out of business. Who are the three winners? So I think the three, I think Disney wins because they're big. They got a balance sheet and they bought Fox to do this for 70 billion to do this. So they're really all in on this name. I think at biggest risk is Warner because they have to price that HBO product above $15. And so they're going to throw the Turner stuff in. Um, and so, you know, we'll see if they can market around that high price point because that is at the Netflix price point. I think Netflix loses. It's already has to raise $3.5 billion a year. It doesn't have the balance sheet withstand a fight. And I got to tell you, if you're if you're a AT&T, Warner Brothers or Disney or Comcast, NBC Universal, you can lose money for 10 years on this. It doesn't matter. Netflix cannot. Yeah. 
Laura Martin, really interesting points. Thank you so much for being Always here with us. It. My pleasure. Laura Martin is Senior Analyst at Needham & Company, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. The earnings parade continues this week, in particular for the auto sector. Fiat Chrysler reported earlier today. General Motors tomorrow. Joining us here in our interactive broker studios is Craig Trudell, U.S. Autos team leader for Bloomberg News. So, Craig, uh, before we get started into digging into the, some of the results we've gotten, because we've already gotten Ford, um, let's just talk about where we are in this secular decline of the auto industry. How low are expectations going into this earnings period? Well, we so we started the year with an expectation that we would tread water on a global perspective. Uh, so, so the U.S. market is sort of was sort of widely expected to uh, start to decline. Uh, there was sort of a, a, a false positive last year of of sales being up uh, just a, a smidgen, uh, but it was mostly driven by the fact that the the car makers were selling a lot more to to uh, rental fleet companies, and and it was you know not really actually a strong year from a, a retail perspective uh, relative uh, to the last couple of years. Uh, we've seen a, a continuation of, of retail weakness and uh, you know uh, sort of a move on the part of the car makers to sort of pad the numbers by selling more to fleets uh, in Europe uh, the market is deteriorating uh, especially in the in the last month I think it, it sort of caught uh, people off guard a little bit uh, just how much weakness has, has been over there but the big big story has been China there was an expectation that uh, the government would step in as they have uh, so often uh, over the years when the the auto market there has shown sign of, of signs of weakness you've seen uh, state support to kind of, you know, keep the, the market uh, growing. And we haven't seen that. And we've seen China really, um, you know, continue to deteriorate. And so, you know, a lot of suppliers, a lot of OEMs are talking about the idea that, you know, they were entering this year thinking, you know, the global industry would be, you know, roughly uh, treading water when in fact, it's, it's down uh, roughly about 5%. It's looking like for this year. Down 5% globally. So we got Fiat Chrysler um, numbers and stocks up 4%. What are, we, what are the key takeaways there? So with FCA, the, the big, big story is trucks here in the U.S. So they've, they've I have taken- a Ram truck. In yeah, if Ram, you know. Ram is- Does it belong I, to you or your son? My son, <laughs> you know, it's- Please, <laughs> Ram is Ram is really cutting the checks in Detroit. So uh, they they've got a new uh, Ram Ram pickup that is really doing well. They also have this sort of dual strategy of they've they've continued to make the outgoing generation version of the Ram. Uh, they actually announced today that they're going to sort of continue that two prong strategy of being able to offer the newer, uh, you know, more expensive, higher margin, you know, lucrative truck uh, that that has been really successful. They've put uh, a massive touchscreen into that pickup that has, you know, surprisingly gone over extremely well with with truck buyers. Uh, but they also have this older generation truck that's a little bit more for the budget buyer, and they're giving GM a real run for their money in terms of the pickup market here in the U.S. And that's huge for profitability. Which brings us to General Motors, which reports tomorrow. Ford reported last week shares plunged seven and a half percent the day that they reported. So not a great day for Ford. Are we going to see? A a similar type of disappointment from General Motors uh, from what analysts are saying, given the fact that Fiat Chrysler might be taking away some of their market share. 
the key for them is is going to be trucks. So so they too have a, a new pickup on the market. They've been okay a, for who is is trucks not the key issue at this point? No, I mean America, really, this is everything. everything. In Detroit, it's everybody. I mean, it's it, it really is still the story. It, it sort of feels uh, like you know, it feels like a broken record talking about Detroit and pickups, but it, it remains to be it remains the case despite all of this hype about electrification and autonomous vehicles. That is still what pays the bills around a town in in Detroit. Uh, they have a new uh, pickup as well. They've they've had a lot uh, slower a ramp for that vehicle than than Fiat Chrysler has, uh, and whether or not they're able to sort of resolve that, you know, work out the kinks of, of getting that new truck uh, onto the market and and sort of help the bottom line. That's important. And for GM, an important factor too is they got out of Europe a couple of years ago, so they're dodging. Uh, the the recent market weakness over there, uh, the the sort of impending uh, doom that is being warned warned about in terms of uh, the stricter emission standards over there. So GM has really sort of uh, you know said you know what we're we're out of here. They sold Opel to to PSA a couple of years ago, and that's no longer a, a concern for them. So that being said. China's weakness is a big deal for them. They are huge in that market, and they're feeling uh, feeling the pain just like everybody else. All right, now we're going to get to what I really want to talk about, which is Elon Musk tweeting production numbers. I thought he had an agreement with the SEC not to do that. I thought so too. Uh, you know, and in the past, we've we've heard uh, we've seen him, you know, talking about uh, cars uh, earlier this week. It was it was about uh, the solar roof, which uh, in and of itself was already a very controversial product. He showed that a couple of years ago, really to sort of seal the deal on on buying Solar City, which everyone uh, you know knows as as being a pretty controversial uh, merger. Um, he talked about, uh, you know, sort of uh, toward the end of this year, how, his hope for how many of those roofs he's going to be able to make. He's had real, real trouble actually just sort of, you know, getting production going uh, whatsoever on that product. Comes out and, and says a, th- a thousand a week by the end of this year. Uh, that's not anywhere, you know, there, there hasn't been any forecast whatsoever from the company from that perspective and the amended language that Tesla and or that Musk and the SEC agreed to earlier this year specifically said production numbers that the company has not communicated previously he needs pre-approval to <laughs> to post about that and Tesla has not uh, said whether or not he got that approval so oh, all right I mean I'm amazed that you're surprised yeah, I mean, right. come on. You're right. I, this is this is. I, give me a break. The stock's I mean, not. It's funny. The stock's not moving. Of course so not, because will, nobody else is surprised. No one thought he was going to change. Cannon, of yeah. course. Yeah. All right. I just. I was hoping that I, you know the Securities and it, Exchange Commission of the United States might have to be able to cage no, this guy. Yeah, you, but just, no. you like watching a train wreck. I do. Craig Trudell, thank you so much for joining us. U.S. Thanks. Autos team leader uh, for Bloomberg News, joining us here on our interactive broker studio. Uh, Craig and the team they they do a great job covering the global auto industry for Bloomberg News. never seen Paul this red before. I'm so excited (laughs) for this conversation. Uh, We're going to be talking, but it's a very serious conversation. It's about uh, women's underwear during athletic endeavors. There is a question, what do you wear under those yoga pants? And, you know, it's interesting because there's so much in terms of male athletic underwear, and it's not awkward to talk about that market. And yet, for some reason, it is 
to talk about this one, even though this is a very real market and it doesn't seem to be very filled. Joining us now, Stacey Hunter-Harrington, owner of Quo Active, specializing in exactly this niche that has otherwise been largely unfilled, which is women's athletic underwear. Stacey, how did you get involved in this? Well, uh, 25 years plus in the industry, started mostly in the textile side. Um, and being an athlete and going to enough yoga classes and spin classes and seeing women stripped down in a studio going, wow, I can't believe that that's what they're wearing underneath their leggings. And it was either, I would say, without putting a direct stat on it, it was 60% of women were wearing underwear and the other 40 were not wearing anything at all. And I was shocked. So for me, understanding that there had to be, a, there's a reason why we wear technical fabrics to work out with our leggings. Why did no one create a true technical underwear to wear underneath? So it's been a topic of conversation more around a white space of the market, but really more about hygiene than anything. So what does your product do? So that's, I mean, what's the secret sauce? There? Uh, the secret sauce. Well, it's kind of, it's got some patent product around it. It was knit on a seamless machine into two pieces. So it's um, got, I guess most underwear has a thing called a gusset, which is the part that sits underneath the women's private parts and 99% of those products are cotton. And cotton, I'm here to kind of break the myth on what cotton is. Cotton's great to wear every day, but not when you sweat. So I knit a total seamless gusset part, which is made of nylon and spandex, and it has antimicrobial moisture wicking properties in it, so it keeps you dry. Um, it was just something that was missing in the market. All right, this is where I'm gonna get to a place where Paul's gonna be awkward, but I, I, to me, I feel like this is key. Yeah. Why not just wear nothing? I mean, why not go commando um, and just have your wicking pants and be done with it? God, Lisa, it's from, I think it comes down to preference. Um, I think I look at it as a different, having another layer to you when you get on a spin bike. Oh, that's yeah, sorry. That's point. Um, sometimes you see too much when you're in a yoga class. You know, I think it just gives a little. I think having that little extra layer is important. And well, Quo is meant to not shift and roll. And it, you'll. I can't wait till you try it. Well, <laughs> I mean, but this actually goes to the whole Lululemon thing. When yeah, there was a problem when you True. bend over and you saw too much. Yeah, this was the reason why you saw too much, right? I, it is absolutely. Let's talk about the business, shall we? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. How long has the company been in existence? Um, and you we, know, revenues and sales and oh, all those gosh. kinds of fun things. Oh, wow. numbers. Let's go to numbers. 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 Okay. Um, we launched a, about a year ago. Um, Direct-to-consumer sales are doing really well. Um, wholesale's been challenging, just as the business and retail and, you know, kind of, I didn't take a traditional route in wholesale. I kind of wanted to go after the gyms. Um, there, that way it became a point of purchase. I mean, to, you know, a hanky-panky was a $65 million panty program. It sat, the beauty about what hanky-panky was is it sat at the register. I kind of, in my mind, when I created Quo, I wanted that to be this product where women would be like, oh, wow, I didn't know I needed that. Why is it that the market for men's wicking underwear, <laughs> I'm actually Googling that right yes. now, and, and there's, there's, there's so, so many. much. The options are incredibly, okay. no, yeah. nothing nothing obscene comes up. Yeah. It's all of these lists of companies that sell this everywhere from your local uh, you know, Hanes Correct. to everything else. Yep. Why wow. is it that the market is so vacant in the, in the women's space? I, Lisa, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the panty market, I mean, Victoria's Secret alone is going to be a $12 billion, you know, 
lingerie brand. I don't I don't know why no one's specifically done it here. I think I think people have tried to do it, but it gets lost in an assortment of a line whereas men for some reason, it just became the, it was more the Under Armour effect. It was a base layer product. How much is it? Uh, $24. And how have sales, and sales have been picking up? They are, yeah, I mean, we're a grassroots, you know, we're, we're growing. Um, in stores or it, online? Um, both, both. So what kind of stores, I mean, are you in a sports we, store or um, just a women's we're store? We're in um, like Barry's Boot Camp, Yoga Studios, uh, Bandier's a really uh, large um, uh, fitness retailer. Um, Net-a-Porte picked us up. Yeah, okay. it's growing. So, and this is sort of anathema yeah. to what you should be doing, which yes. is marketing your brand, which is why you're here, I'm sure. But if somebody did not have your yeah. underpants, do you recommend Commando or underpants? I would say if you don't have Quo or something close, I would say go Commando. It's better than wearing cotton to sweat in. All right, Paul, that's your answer. There you go. <laughs> I'm not even sure like, I had that question Paul, when Paul. I woke up this morning. But, <laughs> but now you but do. But now, now there we you go. go. And, and by the way, you says, can wear Quo on the streets of New York, too, when it's hot, like it's been the last two days. It's it's okay. Yep. It's not going to It's not gonna affect your health if it's just meant to break a sweat in. So there you go, <laughs> Paul. Yeah. Boy, it's so unlimited. You can buy some <laughs> yeah. for your wife for yes. Valentine's Day. Very good. Stacey Hunter Harrington, owner of Quo Active, uh, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, wasn't that fun? You survived. I survived. Yeah. yeah honestly, I don't understand why. No, you're right. That, I, you raise a good point. For, I, I mean, on the men's side, there's so much product on the women's side. And it's not, not awkward yeah. or funny. And I think it has to do with people being a little bit less inclined to talk about female health in certain areas right. uh, than male health in certain areas. I'm sorry, not to get on my soapbox, but I have to say... This does highlight that point. Yep. And Quo was uh, filling that niche uh, so very well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.